Good morning. There you are. Found you. You doing okay? Thanks for floating in this morning. I wasn't convinced anyone would be here. I had a hard time getting up. I thought I might skip, but yeah. (laughs) I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. And uh, as was already mentioned, we are in a series called Free Indeed. Jesus uh, once said to a, a large group of people, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, uh, what did he mean by that exactly? And uh, what did Jesus promise to set people free from? I think there are a number of ways to answer that question, but this morning I want to suggest that um, at least one aspect of the freedom Jesus spoke of has to do with guilt. The first time I recall experiencing true guilt in my life was I was a little kid, I was about eight years old, and I went to the grocery store with my mom, and we walked in, and uh, at the left side of the entryway was this Brock's butterscotch candy display, you know, where all the individually wrapped candies, and you can scoop some up, put them in a bag, right? So I said, hey, Ma, can we have some candy? No, no candy. Come on, Ma, just a couple pieces of candy. She says, no, not today. And she turns and walked away. But I wasn't going to take no for an answer, so I, I, I held myself to what you might call a five-finger discount, you know what I mean? <laughs> I reached over, I grabbed a couple, shoved them in my, my pants pocket, and went on my business. So uh, we go through shopping, then we, we go out to the car, we're getting ready to leave, and I made a critical error. I unwrapped one <laughs> and popped it in my mouth, and immediately the car smelled like butterscotch. And I'm sitting in the back, my mom's in the front, and she gets a whiff of this, and she snaps her head back, and she's like, what do you have? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> What's in your mouth? Nothing. Give it to me. Spit it out. I thought about swallowing it, but uh, I I, I spit it out. Well, she was furious, man. She yanked me out of that car. She marched me back into the store to the manager, into the manager's office, uh, where uh, I had to confess my crime. I pleaded insanity, but no one was was buying that plea. Uh, So I got a lecture from the manager, and my mom is like, he should call the cops on you and bring the cops in. And I'm like, Mom, what are you talking about? You know, and uh, all the way, he was pretty cool about it, but Mom, man, she let me have it all the way home. We get home, my grandparents are there. She tells my grandparents what I did. You're going to go to jail for these kind of things. And uh, I was freaked out. And I got to tell you, for a a long time, um, I was haunted by guilt over over that, that whole deal. I would have nightmares, and whenever I heard a siren, I was convinced the police were coming to get me. So I was thinking about that this week, and I was wondering, I mean, have you ever experienced that kind of um, lingering guilt over something that you've done that you just know was wrong, but you did it anyway? I mean, have you, as, even as a Christian, have you, have you failed God in a way that's been just hard to get over? Maybe you failed him with your temper. You just blew off on somebody. Or... Um, or with your dishonesty at work, or with attitudes of pride, or jealousy, or envy, or, or a refusal to forgive someone? Have you failed God through some uh, immoral behavior, or, or hidden addiction? Or maybe you failed God because you're not worshiping him in the way that he, that he deserves, or you're not, you're not giving at a level of generosity that he has asked for, or you're not serving others with the gifts that he's given you. I mean, I don't know how you failed God, but I know this, you have. Uh, the fact is we all have, we all do, and we all will. In addition to God, because of our flawed humanness, we often fail each other as well, right? As, as friends, as spouses, as, 
as children, as parents, as co-workers, as, as fellow Christians. And because of these failures in life, <clears throat> we, we all understand, at least to some degree or another, what guilt is about and how, how heavy a burden it can be. But here's the thing. We don't have to live haunted by the guilt of past actions or attitudes. We can be free from, from the kind of guilt that threatens to devastate and, and paralyze our lives and relationships. How? Well, in a letter to the early church, the Apostle Paul picks up on this whole idea of freedom that Jesus spoke of, and he writes this. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Back in high school, uh, I remember... Um, reading as an assignment one time Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Telltale Heart. Have you ever read it? It's a classic, right? Um, if you've read it, then you know that the, in the story, the main character commits a murder. He murders this old man. And unable to escape the haunting guilt of his evil deed, the murderer suddenly begins to hear the heartbeat of the victim that he buried in his basement. And he, he, he breaks out in a cold sweat as the thump, 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 goes on relentlessly. Uh, Poe's use of repetition in the story emphasizes both the effect and the level of guilt that the narrator was, was feeling. And we're told that the beating of the heart, it grew louder and louder and louder until it becomes clear that the pounding that drives the murderer mad wasn't, wasn't in the grave below, but in his own chest. And the intention of Poe's story was and is to show in a chilling and creepy way, right, uh, how guilt can be devastating, how it has the power to incapacitate and destroy lives. Now, it could be that some of us here this morning grapple with feelings of guilt that we just can't seem to overcome. Guilt brought on as the result of some past behavior or bad choices. But what is guilt, anyway? Maybe we should think about that. We often think of it in terms of, of, of feelings, right? I feel guilty, I feel guilty. But um, guilt is so much more than that. Guilt is, is more accurately defined as a state of, of having done something wrong, a, a state of violation, of having committed an offense. In other words, more than anything else, guilt is an objective condition, which in reality has little to do with feelings. Think of it this way. A few of us, uh, when we drive, are very careful to obey speed limits, because if we exceed the limit, if we violate the law, we feel really guilty. Um, um, and so, and rightly so, because we would be in violation, we would be in a state of objective guilt. Others of us, however, seem quite able to cruise along, ignoring speed limits, and feel absolutely nothing. But our lack of feeling has no bearing on the fact that we are in violation, we are in a state of objective guilt. And then there are even others, of us, more of us, who, who may be driving, let's say, on, on, on 290, heading into the city. We're booking along at 65 miles per hour because we've got to get to a meeting, and we're, we're, we're a little paranoid, feeling guilty, we're driving so, so fast, but what we haven't noticed is that the speed limit is 65 miles per hour. In which case, we feel guilty, but we are objectively guilty of nothing. Well, in life, uh, we can experience those, three, those same three scenarios. A person may be guilty of, of wrongdoing, and rightly feel guilty. A person may be entirely guilty of doing something wrong, but they don't feel guilty. 
Or a person may not be guilty of anything and yet feel guilty. You say, what's the point? The point is, our feelings may have nothing to do with our actual objective guilt or innocence. And if that's the case, then, then what's the best way to be free of guilt, whether it's real or perceived? And uh, it seems to me that both Jesus and the Apostle Paul would tell us that the way to be free from guilt is to really know that your failures, your offenses, your violations, your sins have been forgiven. And whenever I uh, read this letter to the Romans, I'm reminded how Paul was, he was just an average guy like us. I mean, he was like us in so many ways in that he struggled with sin and guilt. You say, how do we know that? We know it because Paul experienced failure in life and he admits it. Uh, In chapter seven of his letter, he says, I know that good itself doesn't dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this is what I keep on doing, he says. He goes on, he says, I'm a messed up individual. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But then he immediately answers his own question. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Paul makes this amazing declaration. He says, therefore... Whenever you see that term in the text, it's there for a reason. It's connecting just what the author has just said to what he's about to say. And for Paul, he's saying, because of Jesus, there is, therefore there is now no condemnation for me or for anyone who is in Christ. I.e., Paul, Paul says it's true. I'm a broken, sinful individual. And uh, my objective guilt needs an objective solution and that solution rests in the forgiveness found in Jesus. The Greek term that Paul uses here for condemnation is an interesting one. It's a, it's a combination of two Greek terms. Uh, the term kata meaning down and the term krima meaning judgment. So literally translated, the, the term means judgment coming down. And uh, it was a legal term. Uh, but when used by Paul in his writings, the term always refers to the divine, righteous, justified, eternal judgment of God. And so for Paul to say there is now no condemnation, he's assuring his listeners and assuring us um, that anyone, uh, anyone who's objectively guilty of sin can be safe from even the possibility of divine judgment. For in Jesus, there, there, there exists this state of uh, eternal security, a state of objective innocence. In him, there, there is no judgment coming down. There is no threat of penalty whatsoever. In Christ, a person is free from any condemnation, any. And so that begs the question, at least in my mind, what does it mean to be in Christ? And the only way, uh, the only way I, I, I know how to explain that is to say that the phrase implies not having a religion with Jesus, but having a relationship with him. You know, frequently in his writing, Paul refers to those who have faith, those who follow Jesus, as being in Christ For example, earlier in this letter, he writes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To be in Christ is to be in the sphere of safety. It's it's an objective position of innocence, which only a relationship with Jesus provides. Elsewhere, Paul writes how, how God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, the position of being in him, in Christ, 
Paul says, forever, forever precludes even the possibility of condemnation. Why? Because in Jesus, our sins, our offenses, our violations, our failures are forgiven. And our objective guilt before God is removed. We are declared innocent. Now, how does all that happen? Well, Paul explains that the law of the Spirit, he says the law of the Spirit who gives us life in Jesus, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, he's saying that there's this cosmic legal basis for the no condemnation. Uh, continuing his use of legal language, Paul says there are two laws at work in the world. The first is the law of the Spirit. And understand when he uses the term Spirit, he is talking uh, clearly talking, referring to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who at the point of faith infuses spiritual life into those men and women who were formerly spiritually dead. In a letter to Christians living in, in the city of Ephesus, Paul reminds the believers there of their former state. He says to them, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Uh, you're, you're like you know, dead people walking. But he says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. See, the law of the Spirit who gives life, the law of the Spirit says all who become positioned in Christ will experience new life and be rescued from the judgment and consequences of sin. And Paul applies this law to himself, right? Because he, he celebrates that he's delivered, that he's set free. And the freedom Paul speaks of here is a once-for-all absolute liberation. Liberation from the second law of sin and death. A law that reflects the spiritual truth God relayed to his people back in the Old Testament when he said, the one who sins is the one who will die. In other words, God himself affirms a logical, legal connection between sin and death, separation from God. Now, it's at this point, a moralistic-type person might say, well, I'm certainly glad that this, uh, this only applies to guilty sinners because I'm a pretty good religious person. I think I'm good to go with God. But, um, you know, this spiritual law doesn't only apply to the worst of human beings. It also applies to the very best of us. As Paul put it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory, the perfection of God. So make no mistake, I mean, the circle of sinfulness, the circle of objective guilt encompasses everyone, everyone in this room, including myself. No one is exempt. But another person might say, well, I don't feel like I'm guilty of sin. Okay. This week I talked to a good friend who was just uh, diagnosed with cancer. And he said to me, no, Ray, it's really weird. I, I don't feel sick at all. I don't feel sick. And yet he's very sick and in desperate need of treatment. So think about that for a second. In the same way, it's quite possible to be guilty of sin before God and yet not feel guilty. But as we noted earlier, true, true culpability is not determined by feelings. Scripture says we all stand objectively guilty before God, and so every single one of us is subject to the law of sin which produces death. And the only solution to this law is the law of the Spirit who gives life, a law that kicks in when we put our faith in Jesus, who by grace rescues us. 
Paul expands on this. He says, uh, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, or the sin nature, uh, God, did, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned the sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Now what Paul's saying here is, is, is quite fascinating because in two sentences, he essentially explains the historical purpose of God's law, at least part of it. Because thousands of years prior, God had given his law to his people, the people of Israel, through Moses, right? It was God communicating to the people his right, his good, his holy standard for living. And the Ten Commandments summarize uh, that law. But it's important we recognize it was never God's intention to provide salvation by way of human obedience to that law. Never his intention. God gave his law for the people's benefit, but also to, to expose their inability to fulfill it. Their inability to be good enough. They, could, they couldn't fulfill the law. None of us can. We can't meet up with God's, God's uh, perfect standard of, of holiness. And therefore, the law reveals our human brokenness and our need for treatment, our need for healing, our need for rescue. Paul makes that clear. He says, look, no one will be declared righteous by his, in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law because no one can perfectly observe it. You can't do it. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Translation. God's law discloses our objective condition of guilt. And that's why sometimes it's hard to even read through the, the Ten Commandments it's, and not experience a twinge of guilt because we all know we have violated some of them over and over again. The law reveals our flawed, culpable condition and it points us to the only solution, that's God himself. Elsewhere, Paul states it this way. He says, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, declared not guilty. Listen, for anyone, and with all due respect, for anyone to think that he or she can, can gain eternal acceptability before God by obeying the Ten Commandments, you got it wrong. Paul's saying, look, you're if you think that, you're deluding yourself. You can't do it. The Ten Commandments can save no one. They can only condemn us. But God satisfied his own law by sending Jesus, deity in the flesh, to serve as the perfect and personal sacrifice for everyone and anyone who would seek a relationship with him. God poured out his righteous wrath on Jesus as he suffered in our place, paying the debt for our sins. Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or put another way, by grace through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven, we are declared innocent. And God will forever lift the condemnation we rightfully deserve. And so as I see it, um, the only way to truly be free of guilt is to know for certain that your, that your sin your rebellion, your violation, your offense, that those things, that, that it's all forgiven. Now, you may say, well, I get that. Okay, I get it, but I still feel guilty. I feel a lot of, there's a lot of guilt in my life. And uh, I suppose there are a few possible reasons for that to be true. Uh, for one, one reason might involve the temporal but lingering consequences of past sin. In other words, while it's true, Faith in, in Jesus has freed you from divine judgment 
and you no longer stand condemned before God, you still may be suffering some of the, some of the lasting effects of poor choices that, that you've previously made or unhealthy behaviors you were once involved with. Those, those temporal consequences are still there, and so you're faced with them on a regular basis, and, then you, and so you have this tendency to experience feelings of guilt again. But once, but once again, you know, feelings don't determine the objective guilt or innocence. Just, they don't. If you've put your faith in Jesus, your hope in Jesus, then you are in a position of eternal security, a state of objective innocence. You know, the Apostle John affirmed that to uh, Christians in the early church when he wrote them. He said, he said listen, if, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. For we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. A second possible reason for ongoing feelings of guilt may have to do with um, personal conviction over present patterns of sin. I mean, it could be that you're making some choices that you know on some level you know are displeasing to God. They're destructive, they're hurtful, and, and, and you're, you're actively involved with these behaviors or in, or in relationships that, that are wrong that go against what God says is right and good and safe and healthy and best for you as a human being. And who knows what's best for us more than God, our creator. Or it could be less about what you are doing and more about what you are not doing. In the New Testament, James points out that if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. French philosopher Voltaire stated it this way, every man is guilty of the good he did not do. I mean, let's just be let's just be upfront about it. You know, so often we in the church, we who consider ourselves mature Christians, we know what God has called us to. We know what He's called us to to love others sacrificially, to love the stranger among us, to give generously to worship God regularly, to put aside one day a week to rest and focus on him, to forgive others readily as we ourselves have been forgiven. We know it all. We know what we're to do. But sometimes we don't. And long story short, God loves you way too much to allow your conscience to go unchecked if there is some area of your life that's currently messed up, that's in rebellion, that's gone spiritually awry. God's Spirit will bring about a sense of conviction until you surrender that area of disobedience to the one who loves you and wants what's best for you. A third possible reason for continued feelings of guilt um, uh, is that you, yet, you have yet to fully grasp the reality of grace. The famous 15th century German reformer and theologian Martin Luther he really struggled with this. I mean, Luther, he's a fascinating dude. I mean, Luther was so caught up in his own efforts to be good enough for God that he nearly drove himself and everybody else around him crazy. In his early days as a monk, he was known to wear out the confessional booth and his confessors with as many as six straight hours of introspection a day, listing every minuscule sin he could think of, every unhealthy thought ever came into his mind. And at one point, an advisor said to him, my son... God is not angry with you. It is you who are angry at God. 
in writings titled A Treatise on Good Works, to his own admission, Luther said, I was a devout monk and wanted to force God to justify me because of my good works and the severity of my life. I was a good monk and kept the rule of my order so strictly that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, I'd have gotten there as well. All my brothers in the monastery will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other good works. In essence, Luther was, he was a very good religious guy, but he was haunted by fear and guilt every single day. Literally tormented in his attempts to please God, to impress God with his goodness. And it wasn't until he finally recognized and embraced the grace of God that he found freedom from those things. In fact, Luther said, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. And he's, he was right. Why? Because we have such an inflated opinion of our own, our own goodness, our own morality, our own abilities. It's hard to... Be convinced that it's just grace alone, as Luther quoted the phrase, solo gratia, or solo grace, or grace alone. It's true. Don't you get it? That's what makes the good news so good. Otherwise, it's not. Works-oriented religion will torment you. It'll crush you with guilt. Grace will free you. There's a fourth possible reason for continued feelings of guilt. That may be that you're not yet in Christ, really. You're not, you're not, you're not really there. You're not in, in that spiritual sphere of eternal safety, that position of innocence, because you've never truly, personally accepted God's forgiveness. You've never accepted his grace. You've never expressed faith in Jesus, who did for you what you could never do yourself. You've never done it. You've never accepted him. You say, you say well... If Jesus died for me, what do I have to do that? Why do I have to go through the, the motions of expressing, receiving, or accepting him? Why do I have to do that? Answer is simple. Because you're being offered a pardon. And a pardon is powerless until it's acknowledged and accepted. Have you done that? I mean, really? Trust me when I tell you, until you do, all your good, all your good works, all your, all your efforts, all your religious machinations will never fully remove the specter of guilt that clings relentlessly to your life. You won't get rid of it. It's so sad for me to think about how all around the world today, a lot of men and women will walk out of church services like this burdened by the same amount of guilt they walked in with. That is so tragic, so tragic. The only way to deal with guilt is not to deny it or to avoid it, but to resolve it. And the resolution comes not by way of your human efforts, but through grace, by faith in Jesus and what he has done for you. And when Jesus made this statement about freedom, realize he was, he was speaking to some of the most religiously devout people in Israel. They understood their sinfulness before God, but they were trying to resolve the problem themselves by keeping all the rules and the rituals and regulations. And it, it, they just, it wasn't happening. They, but they kept thinking that maybe they could do it. Maybe they could be good enough. Jesus told them there was no chance of that happening. No chance. No chance for them, no chance for us. Religious attempts at resolving guilt don't work. They don't work. 
They only serve to remind us how flawed and sinfully inadequate we are. And that reality is crushing. It's devastating. But the grace of God found in Jesus, it won't crush you, it'll save you. It removes the guilt and it sets you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, I realize that in a room this size, uh, we all come from different experiences. Some of us come from no religious background. Some come from very religious backgrounds. Um, all kinds of denominations, uh, belief systems. Uh, and yet, many, for many of us, maybe this whole, this whole grace issue has yet to kind of settle in. It's so, as Luther said, it's, it's really hard to believe it's, it's grace alone. But that's the good news. And I pray this morning that you would, you would help us with our inflated opinions of our own morality, our own abilities. And may we humble ourselves and confess before you, we are violators, we are sinners, we're broken. We're objectively guilty before you. And we need treatment. We're sick in the deepest possible way. And we need treatment. We need rescue. We need healing. We need Jesus. And if we haven't, if we haven't accepted him yet, I pray this morning that we would open our, our hearts and our minds and our hands and say, I believe and I receive your grace into my life. Forgive me my sin and make me innocent forever. We love you this morning. We worship you as our God and, and Savior. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? So can I tell you um, my opinion? Who some of the most difficult people it is to reach with the good news of Jesus? Religious people. I feel like our churches are filled with religious people. They're just miserable. They're angry, bickering, condemning, judgmental, unforgiving. Why is that? Why are people in churches so miserable? I contend because they have yet to really understand the grace of God that frees us from all those things. There's no need to be miserable. There's no need to be judgmental, unforgiving. We've received all those things from God. We should be celebrating. We should be joyous. We should be some of the coolest people to hang around. But not so much, really. Religious people have yet to understand the grace of God. And, um, but when you do, man, it'll change you from the inside out. And I hope, I hope you understand it. And I hope that you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you realize, I can't be good enough. I need treatment. I need help. I need Jesus. And receive the grace of God in him. Receive him. And then tell somebody. Tell somebody you've done it. And here's why. The Apostle Paul says in that same letter of the Romans, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you believe in him, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be treated. You'll be healed. You'll be forgiven. You'll be innocent forever. If you've never done that, do it today. Acknowledge God's grace in Jesus, acknowledge your belief in him, and then tell somebody about it, okay?
Maybe you have some more questions of, about that very thing, or some of our prayer team folks will be down here in the front. You can come and talk with them. Maybe you're really struggling with some guilty things, some stuff in your life that you just are really having a hard time with getting over. Come down, let them pray for you as well. Um, and then I hope you'll come back next week. We're going to continue to explore this, this idea of freedom that Jesus promised. What is all entailed in that? So we'll take another look at another aspect next week, okay? Let me pray for us, and then we're dismissed. Lord, I pray this morning as we leave, we would, we would leave guilt-free. We would leave um, with joy in our hearts, not misery, that we would enter the world and we wouldn't complain even about the rain because we'd recognize it as your gift to us. It, it nourishes the ground. It nourishes our lives. All good things come from you. We should be the kind of people everyone wants to be around because we've experienced your grace in our lives and your love. I pray we would live our lives that way and in so doing, point people to you and to Jesus and that they may too experience your love and grace. Now may your hand of peace rest on the church today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.